0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Liam Callanan, author of The Cloud Atlas, All Saints, and the short story collection Listen. He teaches in the English department at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and at the Warren Wilson MFA program for writers. Callanan comes from a family of storytellers and says he understood that the world was a place you could interpret through story, and that informed how he experienced life. He studied English as an undergrad with a surprising twist on how he chose his classes.
1: You know, I could have gone so many different ways, but my mom and dad were both English majors, and... Uh, I think my mom picked out all my courses uh, for me freshman year, and I was <laughs> I was a callow enough youth that I thought, well, that's a good way to do it. One less thing I have to worry about. And so I realized in retrospect that she had picked almost all English courses for me, uh, and so the seed, the seed was definitely planted. Then uh, I often think about what could have been the other way. There was Microsoft was taking off at the time, and I also was really interested in computer science, but those were back in the days, this is going to date me, but all the computers uh, were located in one building, which was in a different part of campus. And I think the fact that the English building was closer drew me to that career because I didn't have to walk as far every morning for class.
0: That's so funny that you didn't resist your mom picking out your classes. You were just like, yeah, it's one less thing.
1: Yeah. When I think back now, it's like, wow, that was, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, rebelled in my own sort of, uh, nerdy a student way so that you know when I when I started to, when I when I the next year or the year after that when I picked my own classes, I not only didn't pick as many English classes, but I went as far as I could in the other direction and I took Swahili uh, for a number of semesters because I thought, well, this is something that no one in my family has ever studied before. And so I mean now of course, to say my Swahili and Zoe I I speak Swahili beautiful. But unfortunately, that's the only thing I can still say in Swahili, which uh, I've never used it. uh, I've never actually used it with people who speak Swahili. But someday, who knows? If if this book takes off, I'll be off to Kenya shortly.
0: Was there anything you learned in taking Swahili about the English language that made you look at writing or using words in a different way?
1: That's interesting, actually. You know what? There were... That was the... I had taken French before that, and so, and I probably have a better knowledge of French now than I do of Swahili, but Swahili uh, syntax is uh, very differently ordered than English syntax is. Uh, I don't know the technical terms for it, but the, the words and the adjectives uh, come up, uh, collide with each other in different ways. And so, the, all the adjectives, uh, if I remember correctly, let's see. I was complimenting you on your earrings. I might say, which means these earrings, yours, are beautiful, very. And just the notion that you could put words in a different order and still have them mean something or that you could emphasize things in a different part of the sentence made me think about how people do that in English. Um, I was just talking with some people the other day about uh, how to reorder sentences and how to make really the information in your paragraph pop. And... We were looking at a story, I believe it was Jumpa Lahiri's A Temporary Matter, and we were looking at the words that she chose to end each sentence with, and we were noticing that often the most important noun or concept in the sentence was coming at the end. And so I guess that, that study of Swahili did make me think that, you know, that uh, language itself and the ordering of words is so dynamic and that it really does matter where things go and uh and that kind of even though i didn't start you know speaking english in quite the same way uh, as people speak swahili i definitely got a sense that you know every every word every syllable matters and how you place it it's much more of a musical enterprise than i ever anticipated i think once upon a time i thought of language as being somewhat mathematical uh which i think is part of what it is early on because there's so many rules grammar and spelling and where does this comma go and then the more that you do it and the more that you work over your own work, you realize how much more um, the math leads to art and how much more musical that becomes in the end.
0: Are you very painstaking with your sentences as you write? Tell me your process of making your own sentences pop. Do you sort of pour it out on the page and and deal with it later, or are you a step-by-step guy?
1: I wish I was a step-by-step guy. Uh, years ago, I had the pleasure of being on the other side of the microphone for an interview that I did with T.C. Boyle. And he told me that he wrote word to word. And I'm not sure if he was pulling my leg, or, but I think, I mean, knowing how meticulous his prose is, I wouldn't doubt that this is the case. But his, but what he described to me was that when he wrote, he would, he would type a word and then kind of, study and think and think about what came next and then put that other word in. And then when he was done with a draft, he would just kind of print it out, check for typos, and he would be done. Um, I I do not do that at all. I'm very much someone who likes to, uh, you know, first put all the clay on the wheel, uh, even if it's a big pile of mess, and then take uh, everything away slowly that isn't a pot. And that's, for me, I really feel like that is how it is with my writing too. i I definitely like to refine it, pass after pass after pass, and really kind of mess around with how those words follow each other on the page. And and for me, it really is a process of taking away. Uh, I wish I mean, there's been many times because that's a very kind of messy way to do it. I think in pottery and in writing to put all that stuff on the wheel at the beginning. But for me, that's the only way that works because I don't really know what I'm writing about until I've written it. And it's only when I start kind of cutting away here and sanding there and shaping this that I. I was like, oh, this is is the story that I'm after. And then I can start shaping things accordingly.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Liam Callanan, author of the short story collection, Listen. So, for your collection, Listen and Other Stories, I think there's always a question about uh, when you have a collection of short stories, how you arrange them together. What sort of overall themes were you trying to get at? But I'm wondering when you began writing these stories, what kinds of things were nagging at you? A lot of times when writers start a story, there's an impulse or an image. And I'm wondering if there were certain topics that were really you were trying to express.
1: It wasn't necessarily something that... That I sat down and said I'm going to be writing stories that focus on one particular thing. But I, I will say that in retrospect, once I'd finished them, I realized that I was interested in uh, a variety of things. One of them which is captured in the title, which is listen. Um, but what listening is for me is also a very intimate act. It's it's uh, and it can also be somewhat of a claustrophobic act. And and many of these stories I've realized, and other people have told me that the characters are kind of trapped in these confined spaces, and um, whether that's psychological or, in many cases, those spaces are physical. uh, But they're also trapped in these relationships where they're they're really within this very close listening distance of each other, but it's also a distance uh, that's not very far apart. And I think that's because, to me, that's where storytelling comes from, that the conflict is just inherent in that sort of situation, same way when you rub two sticks together and try and make a fire out of them, Um, the same way, I think. I think that's at work with my characters too, the the distance between them is collapsed in such a way that uh, they can't necessarily escape where they are. And uh, to me, I think the title of the collection for me was always going to be that title story listen, because I thought, well, one, that just captures the act of storytelling and what it is to read a story or listen to a story. It captures that, the original oral art, but it also for me captures that again, that closed distance and that intimacy
0: well, one of the things I think that's interesting about that is that part of the craft of of dialogue, and that's when you really have active characters listening to one another, is sometimes that they're not listening, that they're they're uh, that they each have their own agenda, or there's all this mm-hmm. subtext. So can you talk a little bit about that notion and how that fits into listening?
1: That's really interesting. I I think that we do that all the time, and I kind of marvel at people who don't do that. And so some people call it daydreaming, but I think that uh, it's certainly something that I notice myself doing all the time. Uh, And I hope my my students who are listening right now don't think that I'm doing this when I'm sitting in class listening to them, of course, because I'm listening to every single word. But I think we all have a competing narrative in our head. There's not just the sensory input that's coming in, but then there's also the additional kind of, I think of it as a color commentator, play-by-play, in our own head that's kind of commenting on everything that comes in as well. And I think you're right. In this collection, that frequently when characters are speaking to one another, uh, the characters are both taking in what they hear, processing it, but then putting it back in a different way and kind of transmitting that information to each other in such a way that makes sense to them. But in short, in short, they're kind of doing their own storytelling on the fly. They're taking in this information and then they're sending it back as though it was a different kind of story. And those kind of competing vectors and the different way that if you put a different lens on a scene, you can change the color or distance or the refraction of it. That Does that answer your question? I feel like that, that is actually at the heart of what's going on here, the kind of the inability to listen as well as the accurate listening.
0: Yeah, it does. and And that's what's so... Sort of amazing about writing and just human behavior is that somehow we still move from A to Z in a conversation or in a short story, even though we're not entirely listening.
1: Right, and I wonder—I always wonder how that's even possible. I've, multitasking seems like an amazing thing for my computer to do, and even more amazing for me to do. And I think that it's—you know—it's honestly one of the challenges of writing, isn't it that? when you're sitting down to write, it really helps to be absolutely focused on the task at hand. But there's so few other tasks in life that we devote that sort of single-minded attention to. And what we're trying to recreate on the page is some sort of reflection of real life, which is busy and complicated and has all these different competing influences and consciousnesses. But to actually produce the writing, I find takes a singular amount of... You need to tune out a lot of things. I, you know, for example, when I write, I can't have... Uh, music going that has words, uh, because then I just get lost in the words. I'm like, wow, I can't believe this song rhymes. That's a, what a terrible decision that was. Or, you know, I can't believe is that a, is that a semicolon? If I saw that, and then I'm lost. Then I'm I'm completely anchored in the song. Uh, some days I can't even do music at all, uh, and I I can't I can't have anything in the background. But I, when I do listen, I can't have a competing narrative.
0: Well, I think your sensibility. It's very hard to explain. I mean, it's so it's very delightful. A lot of stories are just very realist. But your to me, your stories have this element of fantasy or just take what would be normal everyday life and just push it one notch above. I'm just wondering if that makes sense to you and just your sensibility of the world.
1: Oh, I love that actually mm-hmm. I, I' i'm gonna write that down i that's uh i think that that is a really helpful skeleton key for me for looking at my own work i would um i would agree with that to the sense that that's definitely if perhaps not an explicit goal of mine definitely an implicit one which is to me stories are a chance to escape and I like the idea of being able to uh, improve on life a little bit i mean when i And kind of and open up and look for that sense of play and that ability to do something a little bit different on the page than perhaps real life is limiting ourselves to. You know, real life is messy and it doesn't have the proper arc a lot of times, and characters are forever not doing what they really should be doing, uh, and things are not arranging themselves in a nice causal order. And so, I love on the page to kind of take that messiness and then and not only reinsert some order into it, but also some fun. When I, I my second novel uh is called All Saints and it features a co ed Catholic high school, which I went to an all boys Catholic high school. So when I knew I was gonna write a book that was set in a high school, the first thing I did was like, Well, let's bring in some girls, like let's make it co ed and then I moved it down to the beach in Southern California. My my high school was in um in the middle of Los Angeles. And so that just to me was kind of makes explicit that notion of like, well, I can I can make things more fun on the page. And I think in this collection too that is actually what I'm after a lot of times just and not just more fun but I like the sense of play in the sense of, the sense of the word play which means like a little give that um, it's not fixed in a particular place and time uh, and you know I think for other authors that the term might be ambiguity but for me it's a little bit more expansive than that um, because there is somehow a little smile there so'm I'm, I'm glad you used that word delightful earlier on I mean not all the things that happen. In these stories is delightful, but I hope that there's like a little bit of kind of a pleasurable charge that people get from realizing, like, oh wait, this isn't real life. This is actually a creative life. I'm I'm happy for people to recognize the artifice of these stories because I think part of the pleasure in reading stories is is recognizing the artificialness of them, uh, recognizing them as an art object, not just I'm I'm not engaged in a documentary effort uh, in any case. That's that's not as interesting to me because um I think one of the great gifts that we get as writers is to improve on real life uh and to kind of edit things out that aren't working that <laughs> that aren't working in the world and kind of make them work better on the page.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Liam Callanan, author of this short story collection, Listen. Yeah, I think there's a good example of this just in your first story, Swimmers where there are two sisters, Esther and Bunny, and their twins, and their town. They have to leave the town because it's being filled in by by water. It's basically becoming a reservoir and everything underneath is going to be covered, so everyone has to move out of their house and w- we start with this retrospective narrator. Esther is a very old woman and this is who knows maybe 50, 60 years later, they're going to empty the reservoir and her town is going to be sort of revealed under the water. And then it goes into this story of her past as it was filling in, It's almost magical. It's it's real. Like you can envision this happening, but there's a magical element to it when it was being filled in and she was with her sister and a boy they both loved canoeing around as the house filled up, as the town just got filled up with water and some incidents that happened. Basically, she ended up losing both her sister and her boyfriend to the water. Can you just talk about the genesis of this story and the writing process?
1: That story is a really strange one for me because it took much, much longer than I thought it would. Once uh, once I had the idea, I thought, oh, this is such a great story. It's just going to come flowing out. Um, and, in fact, it did. But then it, I had to kind of dig deeper in to actually find where the story was. The The genesis of the story is my, my uh, mom grew up in central, west-central Massachusetts. And there's a large reservoir there called the Quabbin. Uh, which when it was put in, they flooded several towns to uh, accomplish this. And so I just, and then of course there were rumors that not everyone had left the little towns. And so I thought, well, this, this is an amazing notion story. And this is, you know, this is where stories are found. Like it, it's, it was kind of a metaphor for a story in the sense that all these things were trapped in the depths and the deeper you went, the more stories there were. But, um, and so I kind of built this frame story. I had a, I think it was like three or four frames by the end of it. I I had this great idea for kind of a nesting doll story and I had to keep breaking off those frames until I got just to the middle of, of that story, uh, to this kind of exploring in the town. And what to me, one of the things, even though that story does end as you, you know, point out in a really heartbreaking way for the losses that she suffers, there's, uh to me one of the things I enjoyed most about it was going and exploring that town with those two Uh, With those three characters, there's this notion of kind of quietly sliding around Um, for many summers, or or actually not for many, for about two or three summers when I was in college, I worked at a junior high uh, summer school at uh, Wellesley College in another part of Massachusetts, and the campus had a big lake uh, in the middle of it. And we weren't really, the staff wasn't really allowed to go off campus uh, when we had our time off, at least you weren't allowed if you didn't have a car. And so the only place literally to kind of escape everything was to go for a swim. And I would swim out to the middle of this lake and tread water um, just kind of by myself. And I was just kind of so struck to kind of be trapped there between the sky and the water and to float there and imagine, you know, what sort of, uh, you know, what, what else was swimming around in the lake with me and what might be beneath the water. And that just kind of got me to think like. There's, there's a certain sort of sensory deprivation tank quality that comes to any sort of water, I would argue. And uh, I think that's kind of at work in that in that story there and trying to find those characters and, and what their story was. I, that story was one that began for me with the notion of this much older woman looking back on something that happened. And I wasn't entirely clear what had happened until the story started unfolding. I just knew that the character herself also wasn't entirely sure what had happened. And so that that made it a particular challenge to try and
0: solve. I I wrote down, you know, I take notes when I was reading, and I write down random things that come to me. And uh, sometimes it can be from one story, but I wrote down end of life. So I'm thinking that, you know, some of these stories were either people looking back at the end of their lives, like her, Or people who had lost a life, like in the Bear Hunter, the main character who lost his brother. Is that a particular time or is death something that you think about a lot?
1: It's hard to avoid death as a topic if you're a writer because not just because it it, you know, packs an emotional blow, because I think that obviously is a very kind of Cheap way to infuse the story. One one thing that I used to always talk with my undergrads about. We used to ha- I used to have a series of rules on the writing workshop for their first stories, which was no pets, no pot, no dreams, no death, because I thought these were all kind of like cheap ways to wrest various things out of a story that they weren't providing organically in the story. Uh, and so I've actually tried to avoid death too. But at the same time, it's I think it doesn't get if you're if you're going after the the uh, the big prey in your stories. If you're going after trying to really investigate what life is all about. Well, I mean, a huge part of it is that it ends. um, And how people, you know, for me, it's not so much that um, these stories have death, but for me, it's like, what does it mean to wrestle with living after someone dies? What's it like to deal with that absence? I think that's a fascinating topic. You know, for anyone who's suffered the death of anyone close to them, there can be nothing more extraordinary than the notion that the next morning, you're supposed to wake up, and the morning after that, and the next year, and you're supposed to go on. You know, the world keeps moving around you and everyone else just goes about their days. And it's such an extraordinary thing to think that this death has stopped nothing but that one life. You know, it rocks a person. And I think that that's, that's just something that I find so incredibly daunting that for anyone, that it seems irresistible to investigate that on the page. I mean, so I think how I would say is, like, these characters are haunted by survival. And to me, that notion of what it means to survive and the burden of surviving and what you have to do with that life after you survive to death, I I think that's just such a harrowing, harrowing thing. You know, I want to say it's heroic, but for a lot of these characters, it's not heroic. you know, for people in real life, daily life is not always heroic either. Um, it just feels like it.
0: Well, um, sometimes when people die, there's something that remains of them. And that's um, what's really striking to me about the title story of your book, Listen. This is told from the point of view of a, a boy and his he's talking about his father. And his father has a tape deck and he tapes sounds and sells them to Hollywood And one of the things he specializes in is screams. So he goes and he tapes people screaming. And he claims to his son, like, I can tell if someone's screaming if they're wearing a hat or if they're not wearing a hat. And his mother has passed away when he was young. And he sort of slowly discovers that they fell in love as when she came in to scream for her father. So can you talk about this story how you came up with this concept and sort of the the sound that remains from people
1: this story uh i had heard the i had heard a story on uh national public radio years back about um how a Foley artist or sound artist uh, kind of had an inside joke about a particular scream and I, I believe that scream was called the Wilhelm. Um, And it was just a scream tucked in the background of various scenes. And it was kind of like an inside joke amongst all of them to try and get these screams into the movies. And that just made me so fascinated, this notion that screams can be their own kind of independent, autonomous part of the soundtrack. And I thought, well, who who does that sort of thing? And then I realized that I could go find or invent someone to do that sort of thing. And so once I had this character who was... uh, recording screams, uh, although as he points out in the story, he never records them live, so he just uses actors, or in his case, he actually likes what he calls civilians, people who aren't necessarily practiced at screaming, but will scream on command for him, because that, he finds that more authentic. And he collects these, and then he rents them out to the movies, and um, at the end of his life, his son is now investigating this, and they, they, they come across, or the son comes across this extraordinary scream, which is just terrible and wrong and really strange and weird. It turns out to be a scream of the mother that he never knew. And so that sort of becomes kind of an exploration of how how did that come to pass? And I I thought, what a strange, strange way to live, you know, to kind of grow up uh, as a child, single child of a uh, a single dad uh, and to have the only other presence in your house be this notion of, um, you know, this mother who kind of lives on in the scream, and not and not like in a in a haranguing way, but like just kind of a very odd, off kilter way. And I thought, like, that's just an odd way to live. And I I realized that that story for me both allowed me to really pay attention to sound. Uh, and I do I love radio, so I'm happy to be on the radio right now. But I just to me, there can be nothing more intimate than that kind of notion of uh, listening to someone without the words there on the page to to me which is what I mean radio is always such a I feel like the most intimate broadcast medium because it really is just you and the radio and you're listening and you're forming the pictures of what's going on in your head and the person on the other end of the mic is trying very hard to make you look at a scene or see a scene but without actually seeing it and that to me is what this these characters are trying to do in this story, which is to try and bring someone to life. Uh, in this case, the the mother um, who's not there and just trying to do through the medium of sound. And not only that, but a very strange sound, which is this one particular scream. And uh, once I sure I could you know, I could have written that all day long because I just I just find it endlessly fascinating, and it, it still is. Um, I'm not the screams part of it uh, haunts me, but uh, I. You know, in some ways, I'm just interested in that notion of ambient sound because that also appears uh, in the story where the father also just has store uh, sound hours and hours of sound or just ambient sound of their home in the background, which I find that whole notion I find endlessly fascinating too. And so that that story was a way of kind of exploring many mysteries, but um, kind of metafictionally, it was exploring what it means to tell a story, uh, what it means to create another world without being able to see it.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Liam Callanan, author of this short story collection, Listen. Well, let's talk about books that really influenced you. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you as a writer?
1: Sure. This is from uh, a book by William Kennedy. Uh, It's called Ironweed. It won the Pulitzer Prize a number of years back. And my high school English teacher at Loyola High School in Los Angeles, uh, Sylvia Rousseff, um, had us read this book, which is really an unusual choice for a high school class. And uh, it takes place uh, in and around Albany uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And it follows uh, kind of this, just uh, these the, these folks on the margins of life, and uh, William Kennedy's gone on to write a whole cycle of these Albany novels, but Ironweed's probably his most famous one. And I'm just going to read the the very beginning of it, uh, and then I'll I'll mention why I thought it was so um, fascinating or kind of mind blowing to me as a as a kid in Los Angeles. Part of it was that if I was a kid in Los Angeles, and I'm reading about um, 1930s Albany. But here's how it starts: Riding up the winding road of St. Agnes Cemetery, in the back of the old rattling truck, Francis Phelan became aware that the dead, even more than the living, settled down in neighborhoods. The truck was suddenly surrounded by fields of monuments and cenotaphs of kindred design, and striking size, all guarding the privileged dead. But the truck moved on, and the limits of mere privilege became visible, for here now came acres of truly prestigious death, illustrious men and women, captains of life without their diamonds, spurs, carriages, and limousines, but buried in pomp and glory, vaulted in great tombs filled like heavenly safe deposit boxes or parts of the acropolis. And ah, yes, here too inevitably came the flowing masses, row upon row of them, under simple headstones and simpler crosses. Here was the neighborhood of the Phelan. Francis's mother twitched nervously in her grave as the truck carried him nearer to her, and Francis's father lit his pipe, smiled at his wife's discomfort, and looked out from his own bit of sod to catch a glimpse of how much his son had changed since the train accident. So what I found so amazing about this is that there's a guy, uh, Francis, who is just gotten a little pickup work to uh, do some digging out in the cemetery. And he rolls out there and realizes that his, he's going to be in a part of the cemetery where his parents are buried. And then Kennedy cuts to those parents without so much as a blink, cuts to those parents in their grave and shows them active. You know, the father smoking a a pipe and um, the mother, as we'll find out in the next paragraph, is weaving roots of grasses into little crosses. And I just thought this was amazing. I said, well, you can't do that. I mean, they're dead. They're not actually doing that. And then when I saw an author actually do that, again, without any sort of apology or explanation, like he was just kind of going to move in and out of the ground, and in and out of reality and unreality. But this fiction can do more than I thought. Fiction is not just about kind of saying you know beginning, middle, and end. Fiction is actually exploring the permeability of reality. Uh, and and it's a beautiful, beautiful book. But it's also a really strange book. That, that kind of attracted me ever since. But kind of whatever you can do to erase the boundaries between what's real and unreal seems to me a very tempting process.
0: How about something you wrote? Can you share something that was tricky to write or took a while or changed a lot from the first draft?
1: So I'm going to read um, for the first paragraph of uh, the title story, Listen. My father spent a good portion of his career with a tape deck slung over his shoulder, a slender, stubby microphone nosing into his pocket like a dog looking for a treat, walking along, driving along. There was no telling when he would stop, look up, not at anything Turn the microphone on and press record. Horns, airplanes, footsteps, tires beating through wet leaves, the breathing of someone hiking in snow, trombone buttons from a block away, a hot air balloon when the flame is first lit, and voices. One, two, male, female, three in a street corner, 20 in a small room, hundreds in a theater, and crying and laughing and cursing and shouting and screams. My father was really good at screams. So this was, this was a difficult story to write in the sense that, uh, I, I did, my father is uh, not good at screams and, uh, he's not a sound artist. He's a lawyer, uh, uh, as I said earlier, storyteller, but this was something I had no knowledge of. And so I had to do some research into it. And I also, the trickiest thing for me was that the story was so much about sound and all I had to work with was this two dimensional surface, just, you know, paper and ink. And so, um, uh, Several times over the course of the story, I, real, I have to actually describe the sounds that the narrator of the story is hearing. And uh, and that was a particular challenge. And I I realized I kind of uh, gave up on the notion of getting it perfect and just realized, like, I don't have to describe it so everybody can understand it. I just have to describe these sounds in a way that the narrator can understand it and then the reader can understand what the the narrator understands. Not to sound too confusing about it, but I think I was able, I wasn't looking for a universal sound is what I came up with, but I was looking for a very kind of individual, personal sound.
0: All right. So where do you write?
1: I write everywhere. (laughs) So um, right now I write in a little office that I have hidden away. Um, But I often write at, uh, honestly, I often write at Panera because I like having people around. I like the free coffee or free refills that come with the coffee. Uh, and I also like the notion or I worry that someone's going to steal my laptop if I get up and go to the bathroom. So I never get up. And uh, that turns out to be the most important rule of writing that I've yet encountered, which is to just stay in your chair. Uh, and so that, that's where I usually get my, my most most of my work done. On days when it's too noisier, I really have to kind of focus and do something else. And then just go into a quiet, dark room and see how long I last. And you can get up in a dark room, and no one's going to steal your laptop. But even at the nicer paneras, that's a danger. I feel.
0: And what do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Uh, I go for runs. I'm a I'm a terrible uh, I would say a terrible runner, but I'm uh, I'm not I'm no I'm no speed demon, but. Uh, I like to lace up my shoes and just go out on the trail. I'm blessed to live in Milwaukee, and I live really close to the lake. And there's something so cleansing about seeing that lake. It's like a big control delete for the soul. That's great because when you're running, you can't write. I know some people say, you know, they can put together paragraphs or start telling themselves stories when they write, or they can work things out. But for me, when I when I run, I'm actually not really thinking about anything other than one foot in front of the other. Um, how much farther do I have to go? How far have I been? And that's such a relief not to have all those voices kind of churning on in my head. There's only one voice, which is saying, keep going, keep going. Uh, and that's that turns out to be very relaxing.
0: And who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I have some trusted writer friends. Uh, I, I, it's, it's almost, I feel like, not to put this, uh, and each of them for me has a different strength. And so I know, you know, from one person, I'm going to get a really, kind of sharp elbowed read. And from another person, I'm going to get a more supportive read that's going to focus on character and another person focusing on plot. And so, um, I kind of feel like I have this amazing bullpen of friends who know what they're doing and have been there before. And, uh, and so I I definitely show it to them.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: I don't know that I have dealt with rejection, not because I haven't been rejected, but, uh, just because I feel like it's so fresh every time that it happens. I I would think like by, by this point in my career, I'd be like, Oh, right. That happens all the time. Um, and it does happen all the time, but it doesn't, it doesn't quite, um, the, the thing is always the same. I think no matter if you've written, you know, a dozen books or one book or none. Uh, and so dealing with it, I think, you know, again, that's just a place where I have to get back into my running shoes and do something physical and some exercise. Um, and then get down and start typing again. That's the, the best advice I ever got about rejection was, well, then just put another stamp on the envelope and send it out again. Uh, and so these, that's that's my, when I, if something doesn't get taken nowadays, what I'll do is I just, first thing I do is I um, take it, send it back out, and then I go back out for a run myself.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: I have so many favorite words, but my current favorite word is prospect.
0: And I like it
1: in the in the noun sense, and the, uh, I like it in every sense. I mean, that's one of the things I like about a lot of words, but in particular prospect. I like the verb of it. I like to be a prospector. I like the idea of digging for treasure, but I also particularly like the prospect as the noun sense of something out there on the horizon, something that you can look towards, a
0: goal that you can work towards. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Liam Callanan, author of the short story collection, Listen. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.